Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus then said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you again, Stella, and all of our musicians, and thank you, Andrew, for your leadership this week and this day. And thank you all for being here. It it is delightful to see you. How is it that we have come to believe whatever it is that we happen to believe? Many of our beliefs are instilled during childhood. Some of those are serious things, other beliefs that are instilled are things like don't run with that stick, you might fall and put your eye out. There are other things we learn as children that become part of our makeup, part of who we are. The books we read, the movies we watch, the company we keep, the schools we attend, the sources we watch and listen to where we get our news, all of these things to some extent shape who we are and, and what we believe and what kind of folks we become. Information that becomes belief. We've heard it said that we are what we eat. That's not true. I would be a Dunkin' Donut. <laughs> but we are what we believe, aren't we? The things we believe, that's who we become. Now, because I've heard it said thousands of times, well, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, maybe hundreds of times. I haven't said it a lot recently, but talking about beliefs, I used to hear folks say fairly often, it doesn't matter what you believe, 
as long as you're sincere. And I don't use the word heresy very often, but I think that might be one. Can there be any doubt that the folk who, terrorists who commandeered the airplanes on 9-11 were sincere? Our beliefs, how important are they? A retired pastor that I know about, a seminary professor, was recalling some of his early days in ministry, and he told this tale. He wrote these words. He said he was 18 years old. He was a freshman at Johnson Bible College, and he went down to preach at a little church near Rockwood, Tennessee. It was called Post Oak Springs. And he said it was the oldest Christian church, as in the denomination, the oldest Christian church in Tennessee. And so he met a woman there. Her husband had been a professor. He had been quite the scholar, quite the leader in the community. He had been at Lynchburg College. And she was, he said, old, old, old. But she had me over for lunch, Mrs. E.C. Wilson. Mrs. Wilson said to me, now, you want to remember that there will be a lot of times when you don't have anything to do. And this was back, way back before smartphones, of course. There'll be times when you don't have anything to do. You'll be sitting in a waiting room. You'll be waiting on a bus. You'll be sick. You'll be somewhere with nothing to do. So what you want to do from the very first day is to remember some very beautiful, very sweet, very complete, short statements of faith, what you believe. And then when you are alone or when you are in crisis or unable to decide, just call them up and you can live on that. That's what she said, he wrote, and that's what I did. And she was right. What we believe is important. How we come to believe is important and how we help lead others into believing is an important task as well. It makes a huge difference in their lives and ours. According to John's gospel, Mary Magdalene and the other disciple, the beloved disciple, were the first ones to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What was the evidence that led them to believe? And beyond that, what is the evidence that leads folks to believe in the resurrected Lord in 2021? Let's think about that for just a short while. As in the other Gospels, the first visit to Jesus' tomb occurred early on the first day of the week. Andrew talked about early in the morning while it was still dark. It was Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and she interprets the removal of the stone from the entrance to the tomb as evidence, she thought at first, evidence that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. Without a second thought, she runs to find Simon Peter and the beloved disciple, the other disciple, probably John. And with a similar urgency, the two disciples run toward the tomb. They were running neck and neck, but the other disciple pulled away and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down to look in, and he saw the grave clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and being the impulsive one always, he just burst into the tomb, looked around, saw the linen wrappings and the headcloth rolled up in a place by itself, and then the other disciple, the one who reached the tomb first, he came in and he saw and he believed. What was the evidence that caused the other disciple 
to believe? Was the evidence purely circumstantial? Was there enough evidence there for conviction, for a conviction of the heart that something amazing has happened here, something different, something new? The empty tomb story in John's gospel runs counter to some of the sentimental notions of the resurrection and reunion with Jesus. Peter and the other disciple are given evidence there of an empty tomb. The effect of that evidence on Peter is not stated in the story, but the impact on the other disciple is very clear. He saw and believed. No angelic announcement accompanied any of this, not yet, just an empty tomb. No reassuring words that Jesus had risen, that he had gone before them. In Mark's gospel, the women come to the tomb and they hear the angelic witness and then they leave and terror and amazement. It's a different kind of ending to the story, but not the end. In John, there is only the stark emptiness of the tomb and the evidence, the visual of the abandoned grave clothes, the wrappings of the body, the wrappings separate around the head, burial clothes. Yet the beloved disciple believed that was enough. How can evidence of an empty tomb lead to faith? And what may sound like needless in repetition, and some of these things are stated over and over, the beloved disciple believed in Jesus, believed in the trustworthiness of his promises about himself and about God. Some biblical scholars and archaeologists tend to think that the evidence that mattered the most was not the fact that the tomb was empty, but it was the grave clothes and the way they were positioned. If this was a case of grave robbery, then why in the world would anyone have unwrapped the body before they carried it away? That's not logical. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Recall that folks in Jesus' time wrapped people in strips of cloth on two occasions. And a lot of the folks were very poor. And when clothing began to wear out, they would cut it into strips because they could use it. And they wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. At birth and at burial, they wrapped the body of Jesus in linens with spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. And the body would be wrapped, we're told, from feet up to shoulders and tied off. And then the head would be wrapped separately and, and tied off, of course. The beloved disciple saw the grave clothes and the position they were in, and something about that became evidence that this was more than just grave robbery. For the other disciple, the beloved, empty tomb, slightly used if pre-owned grave clothes, if that makes any sense, and it led him to believe. What did it take to convince Mary Magdalene, the primary character beside Jesus in all this, what did it take to convince her that something amazing had happened here, something different, something life-giving. Notice that this noticing that the stone had been removed, she ran to get Peter and another disciple. They came to the tomb, they looked around, the other disciple came to belief and it said they went home. They went home, I mean, I don't know where else you would go if you're not sure at that point. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she leaned over and she peered inside the tomb and then there were the angels there where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. 
Why are you crying, they asked her. They've taken my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She didn't recognize him. Been a lot of discussion about why. She didn't recognize him. Who was, and it was dark, it was still dark. Maybe that had something to do with it. Who was this Mary Magdalene woman? Tradition has portrayed her. Many Christian traditions have portrayed her as a woman of, quote, ill repute. Though scripture does not confirm that assumption. In the 1969 rock opera, some of you will remember Jesus Christ Superstar. I remember as a teenager when it came out and how a lot of folks in my church were just terribly upset about that and thought it was just awful. I liked it and so I didn't say anything to them about it too much. But I remember a lot of the music, but in that rock opera, so to speak, you'll remember Mary Magdalene's sad, sweet, haunting melody, that ballad she sang. I don't know how to love him, what to do, how to move him. He's a man. He's just a man, and I've known so many men before in very many ways. He's just one more. I don't know how to love him. But is it fair to think of Mary Magdalene in such a way? I mean, that work, that musical work obviously portrays her in a negative way, but not altogether. Frederick Bigner, one of my favorite writers, and some of you have told me you've read some of Bigner's things too. He said when Jesus was on the road with his disciples, he had a group of women that he had cast evil spirits out of once and who had not only joined him up, but chipped in to help with all of his expenses. One of them was Mary Magdalene. And in her case, it was apparent that Jesus had cast not just one, but seven demons out of her, we're told. Just what her problem had been, nobody says. In any case, she seems to have teamed up with Jesus early and to have stuck with him to the end and beyond. It's at the end that she comes into her own and to focus most clearly she was one of the women who was there in the background watching as he was being crucified. She had more guts than most of them, he said, and she was also one of the ones who was there when they put what was left of his broken and mangled body in the tomb. But the time that you see her best was on that first Sunday morning after his death. Back to the story now. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? supposing him to be the gardener or the caretaker of the cemetery, that, that area there where the body had been placed in a cave, she said, they've taken my Lord and I don't know what they've done with him. If you'll tell me where they've laid him, I'll take care of him. I will, I will see about him. Tell me where he is. And Jesus said to her, Mary... And, and I try to think, I try to imagine how he might have said it, like, oh, Mary, it, it's me. But he said, Mary. And she turned and said to him, teacher, for the beloved disciple, the evidence was not, was an empty tomb. It was the grave cloth. But for Mary Magdalene, the evidence was a voice, a voice that belonged to someone she knew and someone that she loved. He spoke her name and she knew. 
If you look back in John's gospel a little ways, back to chapter 10, that story or those things where Jesus was teaching about the shepherd and the sheep, and we're reminded that the sheep knew the voice of the shepherd and they would follow. And Jesus was the good shepherd and Mary was one of his flock. And she knew his voice. She knew her shepherd's voice. An empty grave and some light new grave clothes and familiar voice. And the beloved disciple and Mary Magdalene came to believe. They came to believe that Jesus was Lord that he had taken the wind out of death's sails. In memoriam, the title of a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, and it includes these brief lines, Strong Son of God, immortal love, whom we that have not seen thy face, by faith and faith alone embrace, believing where we cannot prove. What does it take? for you, for me, for others, to come to faith in the living Christ, what does it take to lead us to believing where we cannot prove? Is it physical evidence? Is that why some folks got so excited? You remember, oh, it's been over a decade, it's been a while back now, the whole thing about the Shroud of Turin. And later we found out it was from the 14th century and it's a different style than the burial cloths that were used in the time of Jesus. Is physical evidence required? We want that. We, we need that, we think. But what if it, that physical evidence is not there? Many scholars that I've looked at and read say that the proof of the resurrection in the first century and in our day and time, the very same is a changed life. They, the early Christians, turned the world upside down or right side up. There was a Christian group I read about in Jerusalem, and I believe they're still there, the Sisters of Charity. They care for developmentally disabled children and for children with physical disabilities. And it doesn't matter if the children are Christians or Jews or Muslims or of no faith at all. These women show them the love of Christ and prove to others that Jesus is alive as individual Christians in our families, in our church family. What kind of evidence are we providing that might lead others to believe? And Andrew's mentioned it, and some of you, you know, the evidence we've seen in these past 10 days the evidence of this church stepping up and ministering to the broken and the distraught and, and those who just don't know what's next, those who are in great pain, who have lived with great fear and great destruction, and the folks who've come to help them and the way we reach out to them. Right now in Noonan, Georgia, there's evidence that the church is alive and well, and I do believe with these other folk that that is strong positive evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That his church is alive and well and making a difference. It always has, but there are times and places where it is so much more alive and you just can't miss it. The great things that we're doing by the grace of God. Let me wrap up with this story from 
it's a Fred Craddock story. One of my favorite preacher died a few years ago. My favorite storyteller. It's a personal story, but maybe some of you can relate to some of what he says. He said, my mother took us to church in Sunday school. My father did not go ever. He complained about Sunday dinner being late when she came home. Sometimes the preacher would call. And my father would say, I know what the church wants. Church doesn't care about me. Church wants another name, another pledge, another name, another pledge, another name, another pledge, right? Isn't that the name of it, another name, another pledge? And Dr. Craddock said he guess he heard that a thousand times from his father. One time he didn't hear it. He was in the veterans hospital, his father was, and he was down to 73 pounds. They took it out of his throat and said it's too late. They put in a metal tube and the x-rays had burned him to pieces, to use his expression. He couldn't speak. He couldn't eat. And Dr. Craddock said, I looked around the room and there were all these potted plants and all these beautiful flowers blooming in the windowsill and on that tray where they put your food if you can eat. And beside his bed, there was a stack of cards, 20 inches high or taller. All of these things from people in the church. All the flowers, all the cards, every blossom from persons or groups in the church. He saw me read a card. He could not speak. So he took a Kleenex box and wrote on the side of it. He wrote a line from Shakespeare. And Dr. Craddock said, if he hadn't written this line, I wouldn't tell you this story. He wrote, in this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. And I said, what is your story, Daddy? And he wrote, I was wrong. Based on the evidence that we are providing. Amen.